All right, team, I'm very excited because the men's weekends are live. You can head on over to mantox.com and sign up for one of the men's weekends right now. We have one live that will be at the end of March in Texas, and you can easily fly there from anywhere in the world. I've been doing these weekends for seven or eight years now, and they always sell out and they always sell out pretty quickly. But one of the big questions that I get is what happens at these weekends? Because there's a little bit of mystery around the weekends. And what I can say is a few things. Number one, these weekends are the place for you to do deep, interpersonal, in-person work in nature, in a beautiful setting, a beautiful environment where everything's provided and taken care of for you. And you get to do that work with a really incredible group of men who are willing and wanting to do that work as well. So you get a group of like-minded men that oftentimes become lifelong friends. What I've seen from past weekends is that guys create some incredibly, incredibly deep bonds and relationships to the point where they have new men that they are exploring life with. We take you through an initiation process meant to help you confront and challenge the part of your life and the part of yourself that has been holding you back, whether that's been holding you back from the type of relationship that you want or sex life that you want or intimacy or finances or body or confidence that you want. We take you and the other men on a journey that allows you to confront the part of yourself that has been holding you back in your life. And so a lot of men come to these weekends ready for change, ready for transformation. And we put you through the paces. So we give you tools, we give you resources, we walk you through real practices that you can take home with you and do on the other side of the weekend so that you are resourced when you leave the weekend, not just with a group of men that are going to be supporting you and holding you accountable, but also with real practical knowledge and tools and resources that you can use on a daily basis to help you transform your life. So head on over, Man Talks. Dot com. You can check out the men's weekend under training or just mantalks.com forward slash men's dash weekend. Again, if you want to sign up, do so quickly because this will sell out. And ladies that are listening to this, if you're wanting your man to show up and to do some work, this is a great opportunity. Maybe sign him up, maybe invite him out. Just saying. See you all there. All right, Linnea, welcome to the Man Talks show. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me. I am very honored to have you here, and I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. This is something, this is a topic that a tremendous amount of people are talking about, are interested in, want to know about. There's also a ton of, in my opinion, crappy information that's out there. <laughs> and so when I saw your book, I was very excited to have this conversation. So let's just start with the big question and we'll kind of get in you know, to the weeds on this front. But what is a dysregulated nervous system and why should we know about the differences between dysregulated and regulated? Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for the question. It's It's kind of like you know, the big, uh, the big question everybody has. And so I think it's really important that we see our symptoms from the lens of dysregulation, because, you know, most of the ways we, we go about healing our symptoms lack a comprehensive approach and a comprehensive vision of our health. So I think it's really important because one of the problems that everybody struggles with is we see symptoms from the lens of 
fixing it. Like, how can I get rid of this symptom as soon as possible? So we get into this analytical mode where we understand the problem, we're analyzing it, we are looking for solutions, we're scouring the internet, we're looking, you know, we're speaking with our doctors. And so if it's uh, anxiety, it's burnout, it's fatigue, or one of the many ways that this regulation shows up, like chronic symptoms, uh, you know, uh, IBS, um, skin mm -hmm. problems. So many people suffer from rashes and from skin problems, and they don't understand that most of the times the underlying cause is not necessarily in the skin. That's a manifestation of an underlying problem. And so the medical system, of course, is designed to help us heal these symptoms and treat these symptoms, but most of the times isn't really designed to help us understand the the underlying causes and what's going on beneath the surface. And so we sort of need to become our own chief medical officers where we start understanding the causes and understanding who are, you know, the medical professionals that we want to bring in, who are experts that we want to uh, involve and how are we going about healing these problems. So the thing I see the most is that people get frustrated because they start to, you know, work on a symptom and then something they do works well, but then they either discontinue it or something happens. And so they sort of let go of this fix they have found. And so what happens is the symptom comes back or another symptoms pop up, pops up. So it's really important that we understand that in order to really address things so that we are not constantly chasing symptoms and constantly trying to fix them, we need to have very comprehensive approach to our health. And so, of course, you know, if we have an acute situation, most of the times we just go to the doctor and we fix it. But when it comes to symptoms that are much more complicated, again, like anxiety, autoimmune conditions, burnout, chronic fatigue, chronic pain, and even things that uh, are very common, and I, I see this very much with young men or men in general, Things like depersonalization, derealization, dissociation, all these dissociative symptoms that can get really scary, can be really scary and hard to understand. Or even things like extreme sensitivities and this just sensory overload. All these things are in one way or, or the other related to how our nervous system is working and whether we have all of, you know, what I call the pillars of nervous system health in place. And so essentially it's the mind, the body, connection, and spirituality. And I, and I, this is based on actually something that emerged from the medical world. So doctors realized, I would say about a hundred years ago now, that there's something more that, than the, you know, the method that we usually apply. But it's, it's more complicated to apply this system, especially for, for doctors and for the medical system. So Usually when we go to the doctor, they, they don't have the time, you know, to talk about how our body feels, how our mind feels, how our connection and social aspects uh, go and how spiritual we feel. But we did understand and the biopsychosocial model, which was introduced, you know, many years ago, it's been, it's been around forever, but we have not been able to really implement it. And I think the single most important factor that is going to change this isn't really how quickly the medical system is going to adapt to this new model, but it's how much we are able to take this upon ourselves. This is our health. 
So once we understand and we know that this is the way to achieve, you know, that comprehensive health and eventually get rid of those symptoms and manage those symptoms in a long-term way, that's when the change happens. So the medical system needs to work in a different way. It can really support this way of healing yet. But once we take this upon ourselves and we, you know, we empower ourselves with the right knowledge and the right actions, this is going to, to change the lives of people. Mm. It's not just going to make those symptoms go away, which is what everybody wants, but it's just going to give people um, a clear path to a more fulfilling life. To, you know, we, ha we, we have the research, we know very well that one of the single most important predictor of happiness, um, you know, I, I don't like to use the word happiness, but I would say fulfillment and a sense of thriving is connected to how do we feel connected to something that is larger than ourselves? So once you start having this comprehensive vision of these four pillars, you are really able to get there. So you're not only getting rid of the symptoms, but you're really starting to thrive. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I talk a good amount about the nervous system as well. And it's, it's something, my, my mentor who's been doing Gestalt therapy and developmental psychology for 40 plus years talks extensively about how our nervous systems wire and our brains wire up very, very early on, you know, in utero, in the first couple of years of our life. It's incredibly important developmentally for our brains and our nervous system. But I've, I, I think one of the things that I've been talking about and trying to make sense of lately is, well, one of the things I've been saying to people just in general is that individuals with a regulated nervous system, it's going to appear like they have a superpower more and more and more as human beings continue to merge more and more with technology. And I think we've seen this with social media, where social media in a way hijacked a lot of our nervous systems unintentionally and just almost immediately, because suddenly we had this external vehicle where we could present our beliefs, our feelings, our emotions, what was happening in our internal landscape, and we could just spew all that out onto social media. And so in a way, we kind of wrapped our nervous systems with social media. And you can see this in a lot of people's behavioral patterns when they're interacting with social media, right? They're flying off the handle, they're emotional, they're reactive. It's, you know, it's all of that stuff that's getting activated. And, and I think that their nervous system has a, a lot to do with that. So it's interesting from a health perspective, as you're talking about, and as we're going to go very deep into, I think. Um, but I think it's also interesting from a social perspective perspective and how we interact with one another. Um, let's take an even broader look because I'm interested to hear what you have to say about this. How do you describe to people just in sort of a, a layman's way what the nervous system actually does? What's its core function? Why is it there? Why is it important? There's many lenses through which we can, we can approach this, but I think one of the most helpful ways to understand it is that the nervous system really shapes our experience of reality. So it, it's like a, a lens that um, takes in all this sensory information and based on that sensory information creates an experience in our brain and in our body. And so 
it is really the way through which we experience our internal world and our external world. And it also is what guides all the other organs and systems in the body. So it's not just the way we perceive ourselves and the world around us, but it's also how that information then decides how our body should respond and how, you know, our coping strategies, emotional reactions, et cetera, should be. And so that's why when you're trying to have this comprehensive vision of health that we're talking about, this is really the core of it all. So that's why nervous system regulation and nervous system health is health, because there's no other ways in which you can influence the processes that happen in the body like the nervous system. The nervous system is what really brings everything to life. So mm. it influences how we perceive our mind, how our body feels, which is what really determines our everyday life. It determines how we connect to other people. And that it's also that thing that allows us to go beyond ourselves and to really think about what's, you know, what's, what exists beyond us. What is, you know, what is that big thing that I feel connected to? Yeah, I've always thought about it as like the bio interface with reality. You know, yes. it's like we have our brain, which is, is like the processing center for how we interface with reality. But then our nervous system is like the, the, the data collector of all of our senses, including the energetic senses that we normally don't think about, right? I think like um, I was having a conversation with a group of friends the other day and I was like, you know, when you think about the the statement that 80% or whatever it is, 80% or 90% of communication is nonverbal. We sort of take that statement for granted because what it's really saying is that your senses and your body are picking up on a tremendous amount of information that you're not even cognitively aware of. And it's that information that is running through the body, that energy is running through the body. And the more attuned that we are with what's happening in our body and our nervous system, the more that we can pick up on the on that energy on that communication on the information so what are some of the quote-unquote symptoms of a dysregulated nervous system like if somebody's nervous system is out of whack what's that going to look like what's that going to feel like what's going to be happening inside of them so i would say that the best way to understand this rather than just focusing on single symptoms you know because because symptoms can vary a lot but it's really understanding what's happening uh, so an, a regulated nervous system is able to move through different states of arousal and come back. So we may feel nervous or, you know, have a big reaction, a, a big emotional response, right, to something. But then we're able to go back to a state of baseline, to a state of regulation once that stressor goes away or once the situation has changed. And so... The crucial thing for a regulated nervous system is that it's able to really return down to states of rest and essentially go back to a state of deep rest, which is a fundamental state for the body and the brain, because it's where all of the repairing and rejuvenating processes of the nervous system and of the body happen. So once our nervous system becomes wired up and becomes dysregulated, we are not able to return to that state of baseline and to that and access that deep rest as easily. And sometimes we cannot access it at all. So that's where things really become a problem. 
So for example, let's say you have an interaction with someone, you get angry, and then, you know, you both go about your life. When you can, you know, you continue ruminating on this and even, you know, maybe later on during the day, you still feel in your body that sense of tension, that sense of, uh, you know, you feel disrupted. It means that your nervous system is having a hard time returning to a state of baseline. And sometimes, you know, uh, you keep ruminating on that even at night, even during the evening, and it disrupts your sleep. So when this becomes the reality of your life, like your everyday life, you're constantly triggered, you're constantly having a hard time returning to a state of regulation. Maybe you work so hard and then even during the weekend, you can't really log off and relax completely, right? Maybe you're constantly checking your phone or you, like you're, not, you're not in a state of full regulation. So when this only happens for uh, you know, a few days, even a few weeks, sometimes even a few months, it's not a problem because your nervous system is equipped to you know, navigate through these periods of intense stress and then recover. But once this becomes the norm and it goes on, for years, for months or years, your body and nervous system get to a state where they become, they, they begin to accumulate the damage. So you're not maybe able to see it in the beginning, but this constant state of, you know, being wired up, not being able to access a state of restorative sleep or just, you know, rest, just calm. This really, uh, takes a toll on your body and your nervous system. And that's why over time you can start seeing all those chronic symptoms, uh, you know, the anxiety, the autoimmune conditions, the chronic pain, chronic fatigue, the tension, the inflammation, IBS, like all of those symptoms start to pop up. So I think the way that it's really important to start thinking about dysregulation is how does my nervous system respond? How does my stress res response work? And how flexible is it? Because if we wait for those symptoms to pop up, it's not too late because we can still reverse them, but we want to be able to identify the problems much, you know, much earlier than they start showing up as symptoms. And so what we say to people is, you know, we give them ways to sort of self-assess their dysregulation. We don't have a lot of uh, you know, validated ass assessments yet for this. And I think it's absolutely crucial that people spend time understanding and learning about their stress response and what are the components and how it, their stress response is, because it's different for, for each of us, and then understand how dysregulated they are. So that's why, you know, we created this assessment to help people sort of get a feeling of where they are. Because if we start waiting for those symptoms to accumulate and show up, the damage is already there. And then we need to work a lot more uh, and a lot longer to get rid of those symptoms and to just bring our body and brain in a state of, uh, you know, health and regulation and thriving. And so that's why I'm a big proponent of, you know, learning about your stress response, learning about what's going on and starting to see the signs of dysregulation early on. I really love the the way you describe that like the flexibility of being able to go through something conflict oriented or go through a stressful situation and then return to a kind of homeostasis or a baseline and i, I think it's interesting because as you were talking about that what came up for me was like hrv you know like your heart rate variability and your yeah. heart rate variability is linked to your heart's ability to increase rapidly right so to rise your heart rate to rise 
And then after going through some type of extraneous output to then return back to your resting heart rate. And that plays a huge role in your HRV, which is a very important indicator for your heart health and just your general, you know, general overall health. So I love this notion of like being able to go through that peak, go through that stress, and then to be able to return back down to a baseline. And I know for a lot of guys, myself included in, in my past, it was very challenging for me to do that, where I almost needed external substances to help me return back to baseline. You know, I needed to go watch porn. I needed to go smoke some weed. I needed to go have a drink. You know, I needed to do something to help me return back to a sort of like a normal state. And I've noticed that for a lot of, a lot of men, we outsource that quote unquote down regulation, as I'm sure we'll talk about. I, I would outsource to external things to help me down regulate, to help me feel a little bit better. What were you, what you referred to stress response? Are you just referring to external things causing us stress? Are you talking about our internal response to stress? I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah. Uh, well, so there's one thing I wanted to say. I, I think you, you, you really touched on an important point, which is that what I see particularly, like this is a widespread problem, but I think particularly men, and I see that, you know, with my partner and with my, with my young kids, a lot of it is about suppressing those emotions. It's just checking out in a way so that we don't need to work with them. We don't need to process them. And that's how we create the conditions for anger to show up later in life. Like anger is, is a very cognitive emotion and it's a very, uh, it's a, it's a very smart emotion. It's, it's a way for us to store everything that we don't want to face because it makes us feel vulnerable. It makes us feel weak. And so we store that away and we cover it with anger. It's, it's, a, it's a very interesting emotion to study and to understand. And, and it's always the first one. It's very often the first one to show up for people who apparently have everything together but anger shows that there's something down there underneath all this facade that mm. needs to be addressed. And so a lot, particularly of men who, you know, this anger shows up as sometimes a very functional coping strategy because it allows us to, you know, use that anger in a positive way. That's something that is all, also um, that, I, that you hear. And, and then, you know, you hear about, management strategies for anger. But the reality is that anger is just a messenger. I like to consider anger a messenger. It's a messenger for something that is underneath, something that maybe you have, you know, you have avoided addressing because maybe you checked out through substances, through hard working, through going through one relationship after the other. So there's many ways that we are checking out. But once we we really want to go deeper, we sort of need to understand, okay, where is this anger coming from? What is it trying to tell me? And what is my body feeling? And I, I really like to help people see physical ways in which that anger is showing up, physical ways in which they can understand what's going on in their body and really staying with those feelings. So anyway, this is something that, uh, you know, it, it's, um, I think you touched something really important with that idea. So I want it. I'm sorry if I, if no, I no, no, to, you're, you're totally uh, good. You're good. I was gonna, I was pulling up this, it's a poem 
by David White. I'm not going to give you the whole thing because that would be excessive, but I was pulling up this poem by David White because it's he he wrote this book. Do you know who David White is? Are you familiar with him? Uh no. Okay, he's he's this like Irish English poet and he's done some great <laughs> writing, but he wrote this book called Constellations. And in the book, he basically does a poem on different words. And so he'll take the word anger and then he'll write about it in this very poetic way to define the meaning of anger. Um, and so, so I pulled that up and it says, I was going to read you the first line because I think what okay. you're saying is so relevant that anger can be a very meaningful emotion that we've often discarded. Men and women alike, I think we've, we've sort of disregarded it from our culture. But he said, anger is the deepest form of compassion for another, for the world, for the self, for a life, for the body, for a family and all our ideals, all vulnerable and all possibly about to be hurt. And I love that notion that that anger is the deepest form of compassion, right? That it's actually trying to protect. It's trying to evoke some form of action. And he goes on later. I'll just give you one more line that I found to be very interesting. He said, what we have named as anger on the surface is the violent outer response to our inner powerlessness. I always loved that line. I always thought that that was so good that when anger is showing up in a really, especially in like a really volatile way, that often what we're experiencing internally is some type of emotional powerlessness that maybe we don't know how to communicate and we don't know how to express, but it's, it's there, you know, and it can be very strong. So on the note of anger, how do you help people identify when they're feeling anger, where they're feeling it, how to move, move through it or how to process that emotion. Because for a lot of men, that form of dysregulation is like the acceptable one, right? It's like, it's unacceptable for a lot of guys to cry, to get dysregulated in like a needy way. And so what happens is for a lot of men, a lot of our emotions get channeled through the gates of anger. And so uh, I would love to just talk about that for a little bit. So how do you help people identify that? And then how do you help people who maybe get very dysregulated when it comes to the emotion of anger? So I think, again, the first thing is seeing it as a messenger because it really changes your perception of it. And so if you start seeing it through the lens of self-protection, like, you know, you just, uh, you just uh, described, it's a meaning we attach to this protective reaction that is happening beyond our control. And it's essentially a response that our nervous system gives to something that feels unfair, feels threatening, feels beyond uh, our control. And as I was saying, it's, it's really, it's interesting because it's one of the first emotions to surface in the early stages of a healing journey. A lot of times it's, you know, it's, at least I see this a lot with women in particular, it's a response to some family dynamics because sometimes, you know, we don't feel like we are allowed to be angry with our family. And so it really feels uncomfortable to experience that anger. And so it can lead to a lot of confusion, feelings of shame, feelings of guilt. Uh, and so the typical response is we try to go to cognitive strategies and to behavioral control, but often it doesn't work. And the reason is because this is attached to, this is something that we learned as a coping strategies when we were young, and it is a way of protecting ourselves from these overwhelming feelings of pain, of sadness that we didn't really know how to handle when we were kids. 
And maybe we picked up the idea that we just needed to get to be tough and be strong and move on. And so at that time, it didn't feel safe to, to show these intense emotions. And so we bottle them up, we store them in our subconscious brain, and then they start popping up. And they are typically connected to specific bodily, connect, uh, bodily sensations that have been shut down and they just resurface as anger, which is a more acceptable emotion, a more socially uh, acceptable emotion that makes us feel less vulnerable. Uh, and so the interesting thing is that it can be triggered by things that apparently make no sense. So we feel angry for things that we don't really understand. And when we are healing, when we want to address those things, it's really important to create space to process that anger and really make space for those underlying emotions to come up. And so this exploration leads to understanding that there's something we need to accept, uh, something we need to let go, um, something we need to process physically and emotionally. And that's actually what's causing us to remain stuck in that cycle of shame and anger. And so what I tell people is typically, first of all, to welcome that anger because it's a sign, it's a signal that our nervous system is giving us. And it's, it's tricky, but it's an easier symptom and it's an easier response to deal with and to heal than chronic physical symptoms, right? It's, it's ideally, if we could take that dysregulation and manage that stress response in that state when it's showing up as anger, we could prevent so many more problems later on. And so switching to a kind, compassionate voice and speaking to that, you know, little wooden, wounded person that learned to use anger as a strategy. And, and I understand that that's really hard if you don't have a model for that or if you don't have uh, an environment that allows you to do that. But you can really be that advocate, be that warm voice for yourself. And that's something that has to do, you know, with attachment, with a lot of things that we have learned in our lives, how to deal with stress, et cetera. And so I'm not saying it's as easy as, you know, switching to a compassionate voice. It's a long process, but that's the way. Like the way mm -hmm. is learning to speak to that anger, to that person inside that's showing anger, that is angry, switching to this compassionate voice. So allowing whatever it is, that sadness, that pain to come out without feeling ashamed of it. Being able to be with that person inside yourself that needs to, you know, accept those feelings of, you know, vulnerability, powerlessness, pain, um, and feel the body sensations that are associated with these emotions. Feel those body sensations, which we typically try to shut down with checking out and all the other things, right? And so it, and it can be allowing intense. that message to be, yes. Yeah, right. I mean, like, I think, I think that's one of the big things for a lot of guys is like, you know, I kind of hear some of my audience is like, well, that shit's intense. <laughs> you know, it's like, I think for a lot of guys that are out there, it's like, you know, it's, it's like, well, I want to, I feel like I want to punch a hole in the wall or like, I want to kick something or, you know, it's like, it's a very, sometimes it's a very intense experience internally. And, you know, I remember Jack Cornfield once talking about, I think he was working in a, in a workshop talking to an individual who had rage problems. And his, his advice to him was, you need to sit and build tolerance. You actually need to sit when you're feeling that intensity and learn that you're safe with that intensity. 
And that always stuck with me because it's, it's something that I used to do when I would feel very angry as I, I would, I called it the fire meditation. I would, I would just sit and I would meditate. Um, when I was, you know, feeling overrun and overwhelmed and frustrated. And it was like the last thing I wanted to do. And, and maybe that doesn't work for every single human being, but for me, it was what I knew I needed to do. And so I just wanted to drop that in there because it's like, it's hard, right? It's like that, that intensity that shows up can be hard to deal with sometimes. Yeah. I, for, for many people who have problems with rage, like very uh, intense anger, it's also about processing that with someone else, like within the context yes. of, uh, you know, a therapeutic relationship or a community, because it's really hard to do that alone. For other people, it's also about allowing that anger. Like they feel that anger, but they bottle it up. And I know for me, one of the crucial things was being able to process this, you know, with my mentor, with my teacher, having someone who gave me the space for that anger to uh, you know, I didn't feel like I was entitled to it. So having a space where you are allowed and to talk about that and to say why there is this anger, where is it coming from, and just express it and let it out. And then just sitting with it, just sitting with those sensations, sitting with those feelings, and just allowing this message to be heard. And that's where I think the healing begins and you, you, are, you can begin to release it and go past it. And so I think it's about going past it, getting to the core of the message that it's trying to convey. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So good. How much of how we as individuals, how we relate to our nervous system is a byproduct of how we saw our parents dealing with their own? Like how much of our nervous system is wired to our parents? <laughs> I think it's a, like, the, like the question that a lot of people have. It's a, it's a very tricky response because there's two sides of this. One is, of course, particularly how you regulate stress. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's a wonderful model, the calibration model by um, Marco Del Giudice. I think it was published in 2014. And I, I love that model because it's this idea of your stress response constantly calibrating to the external circumstances and learning how to respond to stressors depending on the circumstances. And so we have, of course, there is a genetic component to this. So some of the things that are related to how we respond and cope, uh, you know, emotional strategy, physical strategy, bodily strategies, all our coping mechanisms are in part related to our wiring, right? So I talk a lot about sensitivity. We all have a different level of sensitivity and that is of course, something that depends a lot on our genes. But then other components are completely related to what you're exposed to. And so, of course, the way you, you are raised in your childhood and not just what your parents taught you in terms of, you know, emotional regulation uh, and self-regulation, but also the circumstances. You can have greatly skilled parents who taught you everything about emotional regulation, but if you're living in poverty, if you're living in uh, war, if you're living in extreme conditions, that stress is going to uh, affect your nervous system, no matter how great uh, your, your parents' uh, strategies are. So there are situations that are beyond our control. But the, I think the really important thing and, and the really important message that this calibration model gives us is that this way of responding to stressors 
gets recalibrated throughout life. It's not fixed. We can train it. We can change it. External circumstances and, and life, things that happen in life, you know, getting married, get, getting divorced, having children, going through life events, present all these situations, present major opportunities for our nervous system to recalibrate the way we respond to stress, but also our willingness to go through a healing journey and to learn these skills. Our nervous system is, is tremendously flexible and can really change and can be reshaped in many ways. Our stress response can be reshaped. And so, yes, there's a lot of uh, this that is determined in childhood, but that does not mean that you're stuck with it for the rest of your life. You have plenty of opportunities and plenty of ways to change that. Now, of course, if you are struggling with a situation where you have accumulated, you know, a lot of traumatic stressors in your life and a lot of adverse events, it can feel overwhelming. It can feel like you are disempowered. What I really want people to take away is that, yes, those adverse circumstances are tough and they have definitely taken a toll on your life. But on the other hand, you have the power to change the situation one little step at a time. It is absolutely possible to get out of that sense of disempowerment, that sense of overwhelm, that sense of not being able to do anything to help yourself. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's interesting because as you were talking about that, I had memories of my son testing my stress response. And then he does this wonderful thing. He's a little, he's just this beautiful little hellcat. Like <laughs> he's got such a big energy and he's very playful, but he's, he's a boundary tester for sure. He's like in that mode where everything is a boundary test and he's going through the no phase, but he's also going through the phase that when he hears no, he has to do it. And he's gotten into this habit that I've noticed where he'll test a boundary and then he'll, he'll look straight at me to see what I'm going to do. And it's like, are you, are you going to be okay? Are you going to react? Are you going to respond? Right? Are you going to lose your temper? Are you going to become stressed out? And it's funny because as you were talking, I had this moment the other day where he, it would just been a long day and my wife was exhausted and I'm trying to wrangle him and like put his pajamas on and get him ready for bed because she usually reads some stories and then put him to bed. And he is just being a tornado. Like he is not listening to anything. And I, you know, it's like eight o'clock, I'm exhausted. And I'm definitely like, I'm starting to like lose my patience and he can tell him that he thinks it's funny, you know? <laughs> and I was like, oh man. And it was so funny because I definitely, I was definitely worked up and I got my wife and I was like, look, I am, I'm not going to be good at handling this anymore. You need to take over right now because like daddy's about to be pissed, <laughs> you know? And so she came in and she started reading him the stories. And I, I said, okay, night, night. And he looked at me and he did something that he never did. It's almost like he could tell that, that I was on that edge. And he, he looked at me and he said, dad, a kiss. And so he wanted me to come and give him a kiss. And I was like, oh, you're such a little, you're like, you're so dialed in, you're so tuned and you're such a little monster, like brilliant, you know? But I just, it's, it's so interesting how kids, like they're so tuned in. He's so tuned in to my system and to my wife's system and where our nervous systems are at and where our stress levels are at. And, you know, trying to figure out for him, himself, can I be okay when you're stressed? 
you know, can I do something wrong and still be okay? And my mentor has this great saying, which is, you know, that attachment is built in the moments where we go through a hard time and come out the other side okay. And the more that we can do that, go through hardship, go through conflict, go through a hard time and come out the other side with somebody in relationship with connection, right? With intimacy, that that's what builds secure attachment. And I can just see it in him in all of these beautiful moments where he's pushing my buttons intentionally. Like he's, he knows he's pushing my buttons and he's trying to see, can you and I, dad, go through a hard time and come out the other side okay? And I'm like, yes, buddy, like, of course. So it's just interesting because as you were talking about that, that was all playing out inside of me. And I was like, man, it's so yeah. interesting. And I think, I think one of the things, I don't know, I, I think I particularly relate to this because as a mother of four, you know, I had four kids in, in less than five years. And so you can, you can imagine the amount <laughs> of dysregulation and of um, craziness. Lack of that, sleep? How did you sleep? Oh, we didn't. Uh, I had a lot of issues with, with, uh, with sleep for a long time. And uh, interestingly, you know, I had, I was already well into my healing journey and still I became completely dysregulated for, for some time. But that just, I guess it shows the power of this work because even through all the dysregulation, being able to like understanding that and knowing that I had the power to bounce back from this and that it was okay to go through that, you know, it's a part of human life. Billions of humans have gone through it before us and we don't need to be extremely concerned. And I think not just for ourselves, but I was talking about, you know, the, the adaptive calibration model before. One of the interesting things about this model is that one of the, one of the findings was that actually a little bit of stress and a little bit of adversity in early childhood is not necessarily a negative thing. So what they found was that when you are actually able to, uh, you know, when the child goes through uh, a little bit of adversity and a little bit of stress, it's one of the most resilient models uh, that mm. they studied afterwards in, you know, over the years. And so I think it's really important uh, for people who either struggle with relationships, but especially for parents, it's really important to also normalize the idea that we don't always get to have to get it perfect. We don't always have to, uh, you know, be brilliant at regulating ourselves. It's okay to become dysregulated at times. It's okay to go through periods of intense stress. It's really important whenever possible to repair those ruptures, you know, whenever we are in a situation where we just lost it and we, we didn't go through the best parenting uh, model, uh, you know, we didn't show the best parenting model to our kid and that's okay. And so. I guess um, to answer your question, I'm just very compassionate to myself and to my kids. And uh, I know that good enough is the best way to, mm. is the best uh, goal. Uh, I don't need to aim for perfection. I love that. Yeah. Because I always see these like, you know, the Instagram reels of like gentle parenting and, and all these parents like talking so softly to their, to their kids. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that's... Like, that's not me sometimes, you know, <laughs> I'm like, you here now, let's go. <laughs> because he's like, he gets it, you know, he gets it. Anyway, let's, let's continue on. Let's shift gears a little bit. I want to start to talk about in the book, you, you write about the five stage plan to reverse nervous system regulation. Um, yeah. I would love to dive into that a little bit. I want to just first talk about sensitivity 
Is it important to develop a sensitivity within your connection to your nervous system, or is it more about understanding your pre-existing nervous system sensitivity? So it's very much about, for me, it's very much about um, understanding the biology of dysregulation. So Mm. first of all, when it comes to sensitivity, it's really important to frame it as not as, uh, you know, like this idea of vulnerability or being weak, which is something that we, we were sort of conditioned to think about, but it's just uh, a biological norm. Like we all sentient beings, you know, in across species have a different way of responding to external stimuli. So there's some of the individuals within a species are more sensitive and some are less sensitive. That's just the norm. And we all fall somewhere on that spectrum. And so we know the research has now shown that it's a spectrum. It's not like something that you have or don't have. We're all sensitive to a certain degree. So there are some people who are more sensitive, who respond more to to external stimuli and to internal sensations. And there are people who are less sensitive. So there's no better option. You know, there's, there are advantages and disadvantages with, you know, being highly sensitive and with being less sensitive. So of course, those who fall on the lower end of the spectrum of sensitivity are more resilient in many ways. It's biologically easier for them to get over certain stimuli. Whereas people who are highly sensitive process things much more deeply, much more deeply. They respond more intensely to things. And so they have the advantage of having this extremely creative way of, of dealing with the world, of just feeling things more. They feel poetry, they feel art, they feel things that happen in the world, they feel them much more. So that comes with a lot of advantages, but it also comes with some downsides. And we know that people who fall on the higher end of the spectrum of sensitivity tend to become dysregulated more. So that's not to be mixed up with dysregulation. So you can be highly sensitive and you can be regulated and you can be, you know, not being highly sensitive, but manifest and show up with some symptoms of, you know, sensory overload or hypersensitivity to certain things. That doesn't necessarily mean that you are highly sensitive. It can simply mean that your nervous system is over responding because of dysregulation. So it gets overwhelmed and, you know, saturated more easily. Right. Mm. So uh, I think it's really important to understand this thing because a lot of people tend to think that they somehow overlap and they're completely different things. So that's why I was saying it's really important to understand the biology of dysregulation and understanding what's going on. And also another thing that always um, comes in the way, like we hear a lot of talks about trauma, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think it's, it's really helpful to see this through the lens of how is my brain wired to process stress? So we've talked about how we uh, learn to respond to stress in our early years and how that is the single, you know, like the way we respond to stress is, is absolutely the foundation of how well we can go through, through life. And so if we uh, are ex- experiencing symptoms of dysregulation, that's the first thing we should look at. But it's also important to understand that the way our nervous system has learned to respond to those stressors can be influenced by our fear response. 
So our brain is particularly quick and particularly smart in learning from experience. And so whenever we go through something that triggers our fear response, we are disproportionately likely to learn from that experience, from that uh, you know, negative or, or fearful experience. And so this, again, is a very good feature when you are you know, when you need to survive in an evolving world, you know, when our ancestors needed to survive. But today it can lead to some consequences, to some unwanted consequences. Like, for example, we can become highly dysregulated and highly activated uh, when we experience things that leave a trace, that leave a memory that, you know, becomes embedded in our nervous system. So, there's a lot of talks about, you know, everything being trauma or on the other side, like on the other side of the spectrum that we hear, just get over it. Nothing is trauma. And so I think, I think we need to somehow return to um, a balance here where we understand that there are terrible circumstances and we don't get to define what are the circumstances that people find overwhelming. But what, what matters is that when your nervous system becomes overwhelmed uh, by, you know, the circumstance, that, by adversities, it's really important to know that your body is very well equipped to process those things and to essentially flush them out over time. It may take time and it's completely normal to go through, you know, depending on, on you know, on how difficult it was for you and depending on the circumstances, it could take time to flush out those difficult responses. But in the majority of situations, your body and brain are equipped to get over uh, it and to, uh, you know, eliminate it over time. There's a small component and a small number of situations where this can lead to conditions like, you know, PTSD, et cetera, that require help and require treatment. And then there are situations where you get a sort of alarm embedded in your nervous system. And so, for example, you went through a particularly overwhelming experience. And then over time, whenever, uh, you know, something triggers that memory in your body and brain, you feel all, you feel overwhelmed all over again. And so that doesn't mean, you know, it's PTSD. That doesn't mean you need to uh, feel like you are, you know, at the mercy of this, of this response. So mm. I think understanding all these different pieces and sort of putting them into context uh, and learning to build a coherent narrative of your life and understanding, you know, this is, you know, this is my degree of sensitivity. This is what led to, uh, you know, this is how sensitivity impacted my life in a positive or in a challenging way. And these are the events that brought me to having this set of coping strategies. Like, Putting together all these pieces of the puzzle is really going to help once you go through that journey. So building really this coherent narrative and understanding what the biology of dysregulation, what role it plays in this mm. narrative. What's interesting, I mean, there's so many strings that I could pull out with what you just said, because there's a, there's a few different threads in there that I think are, are really important. But I remember interviewing a Navy SEAL about a year and a half ago who had been in, uh, I think he had stepped on an uh, IED and had his, basically it, it went off and it blew, blew off his legs. And he was on the show and we were talking about what it takes to be a Navy SEAL. And one of the things that I found was interesting was a lot of those men have an inherent heightened threshold for stress. 
you know, that they, they are able to process and break down stress at a very high level. And they're able to be under very stressful situations. Like you're probably not having somebody that's like a HSP, like a highly sensitive person that's, <laughs> that's a Navy SEAL out on the battlefield, right? Like going, going through buds, like that's probably not going to happen. And we talked about that. And I said, you know, what do you, what do you think allows guys to go and be Navy SEALs? And he said that there's, he said, you know, it's, it's this high tolerance for stress. And sometimes, you know, sometimes there's other pieces in there, like high levels of psychopathy and, and, and whatnot. But, but that was a huge piece of it. Just before we move on, do you feel like we have covered in a robust enough way the biology of dysregulation? Do you feel like we've painted a good mm-hmm. picture or is there anything else that you would want to touch on? I think we could, if you want, I could, um, I could introduce this um, alertness elevator, which is a model that I explain in the book, which helps people, you know, really like sort of uh, give uh, a reference and understand, you know, where they are on their mm-hmm. um, stress response. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if you if you're open to giving just a quick breakdown of that, and then and then I definitely do want to get into the the five stages to find that regulation to reverse nervous system dysregulation. Yeah. So I th- I think this really helps with understanding your stress response in real time, right? So we have painted the picture of, you know, understanding what causes this stress response. Why is my stress response this way versus someone else's stress response and understanding it. But I think then when we are in real time, you know, we're dealing with certain body and physical sensations or, or mental and emotional responses, like how do we understand what's going on? And so uh, we created this alertness elevator model, which is based on the research of Elisa Apple uh, and other uh, researchers in the in the field of the stress response, which, by the way, in the last 10 years, especially with the COVID pandemic, has blown up. So we have so much new research coming out. And that's and that's why we we understand it so much better. And so we understand that it's a lot more complicated than previously thought, you know, than previous models. And so this alertness elevator, I think, can help people in real time to understand what they're going through. And so if we imagine this, I have an illustration in the book, but if we imagine this as a, um, you know, as an elevator moving up and down, at the bottom, there's the, the blue state. Now, this is the state I was referring before when I was talking about accessing deep rest. And that's where we need to spend time because that's where we feel calm, relaxed, our heart is beating slow. Um, we have this slow, deep breath. So this is the state where all those reparatory processes of the body happen. And that's why we need to access this state on a regular basis. And so that's why sleep is so important, but also meditation and other states where we are deeply resting allow us to access this state. And so you know, from an emotional point, of course, if you're not sleeping, you may feel uh, very peaceful, serene, completely at peace with the world. And so also your vision of the world is as a peaceful place in this state, right? You feel completely uh, at rest. If we move a little bit up the elevator, we get to the green state. This is where our parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems, you know, the, these different branches of the autonomic nervous system are sort of at balance. So they they are both activated, but the sympathetic response is not too predominant, right? So this is where we feel in our flow, in our flow state. So we are present, we are very focused, we're doing our best work, 
we have a steady pulse, we have our, our breathing reaches our belly. So we're in a state of flow, our muscles are relaxed, and we feel positive, we feel calm, we feel like we have things under control, we feel like we can do our best work and we are creative. This is where we do our, our best creative work and we connect with other people. And so the world feels like really a place where we can, like a place of opportunity where we can connect with other people, we can do great things. Now, if we move a little bit further up and we go to this yellow state, I call this, um, you know, the treadmill of cognitive activation, because this is where we tend to spend so much time, especially in our busy lives, uh, you know, in, in the modern world where we are constantly you know, there's something going on constantly and our brain can never return to a state of calm. So spending a lot of time in this yellow state, this is where we are, you know, ruminating, catastrophizing, uh, worrying. Uh, we have all this stream of thoughts, stream of worries going on in our brain. And so this is where our nervous system really feels unsafe because it's like there's a constant little stress, little threat going on in the background. And so when we spend a lot of time in this state, it becomes much harder to go back to the lower state. And then, of course, there's a, the extreme, uh, you know, the red state, this uh, extreme response, which is a full-blown, you know, fight or flight response. And it's the traditional one that we hear a lot about. But we don't necessarily need to spend all of our time in, in this red state in these big emotional responses or big physical responses to eventually, you know, accumulate the damage that leads to, to dysregulation. Because if we spend most of our days and sometimes our nights in this yellow state, constantly ruminating, constantly thinking, constantly busy, our nervous system essentially learns to spend most of the time there and it becomes wired for that state. It becomes a lot harder to move down to the to the states, uh, you know, to the green and blue states. And that's why the retraining process really involves spending and moving down from these states, like becoming cognitively aware, becoming aware and taking the steps so that our body and mind can return to those two states. And this creates a process where our, our nervous system and our stress response learn to let go. And so that inflexibility, that rigidness that we discussed in the beginning that is associated with this regulation can return to a state of flexibility and regulation because we learn and we teach and we, we have to sort of force our nervous system to go back to those states uh, in the beginning, but then it learns again to go back to those states. And so mm. the more you, 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 know, you practice it, the, the more times you teach your nervous system to go from, from an activated state back to that green or blue state, the more this becomes an automated response and the more your nervous system learns to return to that state. And so the more time you will be able to spend in those states, which is the whole purpose of mm -hmm. healing uh, and, and, and doing this journey. I love that. Well, thanks, thanks for breaking that down because when I, when I got your book and I started to go through it, that uh, alertness elevator was definitely one of the things that stood out to me. I was like, this is so good. This is so simple. It's a good visualization of like, you know, you're starting to get elevated and moving into these more stressed states. You know, the alarms are going off in your body, et cetera, et cetera. And then to be able to move down into this more calm, grounded space. And so I really appreciate that orientation. Let's close out with spending some time on the five stage plan to reverse 
yeah. nervous system dysregulation. So where does all of this begin? So I would say it, it begins in the structure, which is essentially a foundation of the five states. And the structure for me is essentially behavioral and everyday habits that we can start taking on that really supports the work. So things like physical movement, uh, but especially, I would say, especially for people who have a high degree of sensitivity, it's about giving the right sensory stimuli to your body and brain. And so, you know, there's a wide range of things that go from, you know, nutrition, circadian rhythm, sleep, et cetera, et cetera. And these things really provide a foundation, right? Because it's really hard to take on a healing journey if you don't have, you know, the basics at least starting to get them right, you know, like sleep, starting to work on sleep, starting to work on nutrition that doesn't, you know, further dysregulate you. So I would say that is like a sort of premise to the whole thing. Uh, I was going to say, like, if you're if you're pounding Red Bulls at 10 o'clock at night <laughs> and when you wake up in the morning, it's probably going to be pretty hard to find a good, calm, balanced, regulated place. And I think the nice thing that is, you know, that that you've laid out is like stage number one is awareness. And I feel like we've been kind of inadvertently talking about this throughout this conversation, yeah. like recognizing your nervous system patterns, I think has really been a big part of what we've been discussing. But is there is there anything Absolutely. that you want to lay into that? Is that about really understanding yes. the physical sensations? So it's it's a lot about what we just discussed, but I think one crucial thing that is absolutely foundational to the awareness stage is what I call the pause, like really creating a space between whatever trigger, whatever situation you're going through and your response. Like giving that time is what creates that space for something new to emerge. So it's not just about becoming aware and paying attention to the fact that you're having this response and why this response is happening, but it's also taking a moment before you go to your habitual coping strategy, which can totally be, you know, what you do next. But creating that space, that gap, is what with time allows something else to emerge. And so that's where, you know, we start laying the foundations for this work. So that's why stage one is so important to create this habit of not going immediately to the response, but just slowing everything down. Especially, for example, we talk about anger. So that's definitely uh, one of the examples, right? Instead of like going full blown, get angry, but but just give yourself some time before you do whatever coping mechanism you are used to do. Mm. And that's the first step. In stage two of regulation, that's where we bring in the body. So we introduce these short body-based interventions uh, so that you can essentially change how you're feeling by creating a sense of safety, a state of regulation in the body. So. This is the stage where we see a lot of results and aha moments for people because they realize that by doing these very simple practices, they start feeling more in control of how their body and brain respond to situations. And so I would say these two stages alone are enough for people usually to get relief within, uh, you know, within the first few weeks. But then comes, you know, the restoration part, which is where we, we need to go Can deeper. we pause there for a sec? Can we pause there for a sec? Sure, can you sure. give an example sure. of the body-based exercise? Like when you're, when you're yeah. saying that is that, because I think that just, just to contextualize it for, for the listener and so that they have something that they can be like, oh, I can go and do that. I can try that. 
So this is where um, somatic practices come into place, right? We, we hear a lot about somatic practices. Somatic practices are simply physical body practices where we are essentially changing something in our physical response. And that change at the body level creates a change at the central level. So for example, the physiological side or just, just a relaxation practice, like things that engage a certain group of muscles or a certain group of, you know, sensations that essentially create a change and sort of force the body to relax. This relaxation, this letting go at the body level creates a change in the way we perceive that emotion because physical response and emotional response are the two sides of the same coin. So if we change one, we are bound to change the other. And so because it's very difficult to change the mind with the mind, we're changing it with the body. So we're using the body essentially to create that change, that shift at the emotional level. And it works really, really well. And so once you start doing that many times, you're retraining your nervous system to move from those higher states at the, in the alertness elevator that we discussed to the lower state. And when you start doing that again and again and again, that's when neuroplasticity comes in and your body starts to do that automatically. And you learn to let go more easily without having to put all the effort into it. So that's why these two stages are so foundational. And does the embodiment exercise or the somatic exercise, like would it be doing like a, a box breathing? Would it be doing something like, you know, laying on the ground and bringing... If we just want to keep it to, to the breath, which is a very, uh, it's, a, it's a very powerful way to regulate in the moment. One of the most effective that's, you know, that's been proven by research by uh, David Spiegel and uh, Stanford, that, that even more effective than meditation, this physiological side, I can show it to you. It's essentially two in-breath, but like, so you're, you're doing two in-breaths, and then a slow, long out-breath. So in these two in-breaths, essentially what you do is first you, you reach, let's say, halfway through your lungs, and then you completely fill your lungs in the, in the second part of the in-breath. So it's, the out-breath is really, really long and slow. And mm. if you do this several times, it completely changes your biology and your regulation in the moment. So it's one of the most effective practices to, to regulate in the moment. If you're experiencing anxiety, et cetera, it's just really, really powerful. I'm also a big proponent of somatic practices that essentially relax the neck and shoulder area, because these are areas where we typically tense and carry a lot of tension whenever we are stressed. And then releasing, you know, the area of, you know, the, the abdomen and the lungs, etc. Like really releasing all of the upper part of the body, like the tension that is held at the upper part of the body. And so I have, I have a few practices in the book that I show. Yeah, really, I think depending on what people prefer and what their specific areas of tension are, they can, you know, mix and match and choose different things. But I would say... Start with, the, start with the physiological side and then test all these other ways to essentially release different muscles groups. It's funny because, uh, so my background was in music. I was a classical singer 
And I joke around on the podcast a lot that I have a degree in breathing and like that's that's really all that I did. <laughs> it was was learn how to breathe properly and effectively and and in prolonged ways. And one of the fascinating things, like I was a hockey player growing up, and so I carried and I, you know, worked construction and worked out a whole bunch. And so when I actually started singing, I carried a tremendous amount of tension in my shoulders, across my chest, in my abdomen, in my upper back. And so I spent years inadvertently doing somatic releasing exercises. You know, I I went through rolfing and what's it? It's like Feldenkrais or I don't know. I went through all these different like modalities and learned how to like release tension in all my body. And, and it really was incredibly powerful because in hindsight, once I started to study psychology and, and the nervous system and the body, I was like, oh, that's what I was doing that entire time. Like I was learning how to breathe and release tension and regulate my body. It's like, this is so wild. So yes, it, I'm sure that people can definitely refer to the book because there's some really, really phenomenal exercises in there. And we'll have the link for that. Okay, restoration. Let's get into restoration. Yeah. How do we begin to rebuild that nervous system flexibility? What's important? So restoration is where you really go into the tough things, right? So you, you, you work on things like, you know, attachment. You work on things like traumatic stressors and things that have really created and accumulated that damage over time. And the reason it's so important to not do it before and to address this after stage one and two is because if you go straight to those really tough things, it can really backfire at you because in stage one and two, you're building the basic tools that you need in order to regulate yourself and to sort of bring down a little bit, like bring down a notch your level of dysregulation. So restoration is also a great time to work with a therapist if you can and you're willing to do so or with a group. So this is where you really go and work on all those coping mechanisms that we discussed before, you know, like anger or like what are the things that are really constantly showing up in your life that you need to address and that require digging deep into, you know, your demons and your, the things that scare you. So mm. when you are equipped with those tools before you go there, you are much more likely to stick with it because it's less scary. You have learned how to create a sense of safety in your body, even in a state of activation. And so you're able to process all those things and know that you can return to safety. And mm. it's, I think it's still really important to go through this stage with some help. So be it with a therapist, be it with a community, like heal your nervous system, or be it with, you know, whatever is the situation. It can be a friend, it can be a, a mentor, different things for, for different people. But I think it's really important to see it as um, a stage where you're going to need to have someone with you. You don't want to go through, especially if you have to deal with very deep and very complicated matters, you want to do this with someone. And then we move to stage four, connection. And this is where you are starting to become more regulated. You are starting to untangle all of those problems. And so it's time to start connecting with other people in a different way. And so you can, uh, you know, you can repair the relationships that you have struggled with, be it with your family, be it with your partner. And this is a stage where oftentimes you start feeling this sense of interconnectedness with others. You have developed a sense of compassion for other people. 
And so you can really become, you know, a parent, a leader from a different place, from a place of, you know, someone who's done the work and who is ready to give back to others. And I think that's a really great stage to be with. And I have to say, whenever I see people reaching that stage in our community, it, it really, it's where, you know, they're ready to become mentors. They're ready to become, uh, to give back. And it's a wonderful, a wonderful experience to go through, through that stage. And then the fifth and final stage, which I call expansion, is where essentially we have reached uh, full, the full capabilities of our nervous system. And now we're ready to expand. We are ready to use stress intentionally. We can use stress to expand our capacity. And we can use experiences of awe, which I talk a lot about in the book, because awe has become one of the hot topics of research. We know that it's so powerful to help us expand our capacity for intensity, for vitality, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm not a big proponent of, of seeing a healing journey as a way to improve yourself or to sort of conform yourself to the outside narratives that we hear about, you know, performing in a certain way. But I think expansion is really that opportunity to leverage the, the amount of the, the big potential that our nervous system gives us. So we get to a place where we are thriving in our life, we're thriving in our relationships, we can still do more. Like it's almost limitless, the possibilities that we can achieve with, with our regulated nervous system. And so this stage is really very personal. And so I think when people have this big connection to something important, which can be, you know, parenting, or it can be being in a relationship, or it can be, you know, social justice or spirituality, or just anything that they feel matters to them, being in that expansion phase is where you really start feeling how you can contribute in that great way to the world. And mm. so it's a stage that I wish, I wish everyone could go uh, through. I agree. I agree. I've definitely found that I have more capacity, you know, the more that I've done this work for all sorts of stuff, whether it's my family, my friends, my mission, right? My purpose in life. So, well, thank you so much. I feel we could keep going. We are over time. I hope that I'm, I'm not making you late for anything else. Uh, but this no, was a really absolutely. good, good. Um, this is a really wonderful conversation. And uh, I'm sure that people have lots of questions. So we might have to have round two at some point. But for everyone that's out there listening, where can they go to learn more about you, your work and the book? So they can go to healyournervousystem.com or find me on Instagram. We're also about to release a YouTube channel. So soon they will find me on there too. And then of course they can find the book anywhere books are sold. And I look forward to connecting with, with your audience. Awesome. Awesome. We'll have all the links to that in the show notes. Definitely go check that out. I can't believe that you got healyournervousystem.com. <laughs> well done. Well done on that domain. That's amazing. Uh, crushing it on the SEO marketing. I guess, I guess it was before this was, uh, became mainstream, right? I guess so. Yeah, you, you nailed like it. That's, that's well done. For everybody that's out there listening, this is definitely an episode to listen to with your partner, with your friends. This is something to man it for, to share it with somebody in your life uh, that you know is wanting to regulate, wanting to heal their nervous system, wanting to find a, a better sense of grounding and calm. So definitely man it for, send it to them. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off.